Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast, unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, a corporate exec turned author who has recently written a series of books about topics we don't often talk about. Things like death, grief, not having kids, and the unexplained power doctors often wield over us. Apparently, some of my books have made some people feel a little uncomfortable, but I felt that I wanted to have far more conversations around weird, wonderful, and sometimes taboo topics. So I reached out to some interesting people and asked them just one question. If there is one topic that you'd love society to talk more about, what would it be and why? And what they've shared with me has been amazing. So let's dive in and see where the conversation takes us. I think it's important to sort of uh, acknowledge that, you know, the trash islands don't exist out there, but there's enough trash out there to make as many islands as you want. There is so much trash in the sea. Tim Silverwood is an award-winning environmentalist committed to reducing human impacts on the natural world. A keen surfer, Tim became alarmed at the risks plastic pollution posed to our oceans and wildlife, co-founding the not-for-profit organisation Take Three for the Sea in 2009. After 10 years building Take Three into a social movement and successful charity, Tim launched Ocean Impact Organisation, or OIO, in 2020. OIO is Australia's first ocean impact ecosystem and startup accelerator helping people to start, grow and invest in businesses that positively impact the ocean. Tim's focus and mission with OIO is to create an abundant and sustainable ocean through inspiration, innovation, leadership and good business. Tim's achievements include being awarded the 2014 Green Globe Sustainability Champion, featuring in the popular ABC series War on Waste and starring as an ocean guardian in the 2017 feature documentary Blue. In 2011, Tim sailed 5,000 kilometres across the North Pacific Ocean to study the infamous Great Pacific Garbage Patch, sharing his experiences through a popular TEDx talk on his return. A regular feature and fixture in the news and media, Tim delivers a firm, reasoned and insightful case for business as unusual to create an abundant and sustainable future for planet ocean and its inhabitants. Tim and I share a love of yoga and met a few years ago whilst enjoying the beautiful vista of our beloved Well Beach. I tell you, you couldn't meet a nicer guy and it's so refreshing to find someone that has not only clearly found their passion and calling in life, but who dedicates everything to pursuing that cause and is making one hell of a difference along the way. Tim, it's such a delight to have you here, in person no less, to chat to me today. So thank you for coming on the podcast and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's beautiful. I think we're going to have a a fabulous convo. So uh, if there is one thing you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? I want to talk about, uh, I want to see more people talking about the fact that we live on planet ocean. Uh, I think as humans we naturally gravitate and put a lens and a focus on the terrestrial land that we all inhabit but if you're out in outer space and you're looking back at our beautiful planet what do you see you see a a pale blue marble you see ocean so i love this idea that we live on planet ocean and my gosh if we did start to look at all the decisions that we make 
through the lens of the ocean, then I think this vision of long-term sustainability for us and all the other species that we live on this planet with, then we'd be doing a much better job. Oh, Tim, I've just got goosebumps. That is just the most amazing topic. I've actually never heard that term. That's a beautiful term. And yeah, I know uh, you kind of talk about that a little bit in your podcast and with your partner and through your businesses. But uh, where did that come from, the term planet ocean? Good question. I know that um, we've been doing a little bit of research into some of the origins of how humans view the ocean. And one that came up was from about 1942 with a cartographer called Spielhouse. And he created a whole new map of the planet, which traditionally is like that rectangle that's going to split out from the sides. And there's all sorts of different um, scalings towards certain countries over others and regions of the world. But he, he chose to create one with the ocean at the center. And so it's actually taken looking, if you were above Antarctica and looking out, and from this, you can truly see just the scale of the ocean by comparison to landmass. So yeah, I think once we got into outer space and started looking back and seeing all this blue and Carl Sagan made some profound things, and there was that incredible Earthrise photograph by NASA and people started to really start to realize not only how blue the planet was, but just how small and fragile it looked when you actually look at it from that perspective. Mm, it's so true. And I think, but as you say around, you know, it's a shift of mentality. And I think then us having more importance sort of played, I guess, on the ocean, right? Which is the work you've been doing for what? 20 years, probably <laughs> very long time. So can we get into that a little bit? So you've been the CEO for 10 years of a business that you co-founded, which is Take Three for the Sea, and have had made enormous impact in that space. And then more recently, about 12 months ago, you stepped out of that role, handed the baton over, and uh, then moved or started a new business, which is called uh, Ocean Impact Organization. So tell me a little bit about those two organizations and why you've done work in this space and why you're so passionate about it. The idea of working in sustainability was set probably when I was in my early teens, like at high school, loving geography, loving learning about how beautiful and complex and diverse this planet that we all live on was. And so I knew even going into high school and studying science and sustainability that that was going to be the case. Admittedly, some of my first jobs were in sort of more terrestrial conservation and I enjoyed them. I, you know, Australia has a massive problem with invasive pests and problem species. And so a lot of the work I was doing was around that critically important stuff. But being a surfer, the ocean was always calling me. I mean, it's, mm. it's my temple and it's my gym and it's this place that just means so much. And so getting older and particularly traveling around the world and surfing, that was when I started to see the way the ocean was being treated. And it almost was like feeling like your temple was getting trashed, seeing this ocean being dealt these blows, even though you could still come home and the ocean looked and felt and smelt pristine, it is one ocean, it's all interconnected. So I could get this sense that particularly the pollution problem was going to start to come to our shores no matter what we did. And so that really set me up to sort of just want to tackle this problem of, of pollution and the most basic type of pollution. Pollution is obviously a very, very cryptic problem, all sorts of pollution, but the plastics to sell seemed for me just the one that needed the most immediate attention and should be theoretically the easiest one to solve. And so it was about 2007 and 2008 when I had my call to arms to do something. 
And that ended up transpiring to meeting Amanda and Roberta, who were these two fantastic women who already had the idea for Take Three for the Sea. And I joined them. I said, I'm going to help you, you know, build this thing and get people aware of this brilliant initiative. So if you haven't heard of it, it's just, um, you know, when you go to a beach or a natural place or even if you're walking down the street, if you see a bit of plastic, like you have an opportunity to pick it up because if you don't, the ocean's downhill from everywhere. It gets into the ocean. It lasts a really long time. It kills and maims and debilitates marine life. And um, it's going to be there when your grandkids and their grandkids and their grandkids are around. So that was great. 10 years leading that. It's a non-profit organisation. So full of all the inherent challenges that come associated with um, building and leading a non-profit. And then, yeah, it was a couple of years ago, 2018, probably when I started to think, you know what, I need to start planning my exit. I need to find my next new thing. And so OIO, um, Ocean Impact Organization, is that next thing. I work with a fantastic guy called Nick Chiarelli, who's like a chartered accountant and has had a lot of experience working in finance and particularly around startups. And then I'm the passionate eco-warrior and together, we're basically looking to accelerate 100 startups in five years that are all working to improve the health of the ocean. So it's using business as a force for good and trying to shift good money into restoring and regenerating the way we treat the ocean. So it's a very exciting place to be playing in. And so I've listened to some of your podcasts. So people are pitching to you, just like a, you know, people kind of know in terms of tech startup worlds about, you know, pitching ideas or businesses. Is that kind of how it works? Like they're pitching ideas and then you're bringing the funding in to sort of match these projects, but all very much on the impact around the ocean. Yeah, that's right. So we are a startup accelerator. We've only been around for one year. So in year one, we weren't fully resourced, so we didn't run an accelerator cohort, but we will start to do that towards the end of 2021, start of 2022. But what we did in year one was say, well, let's just prove our, you know, that we are on the right path here. Let's show the world how many of these ocean impact startups are out there. So we ran a big campaign called the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest. And even though it was our first initiative, we had 192 startups apply from 38 countries. And across the board, there were so many innovative solutions to big ocean challenges. And so we ended up shortlisting 12 startups. We had a winner, um, two runners up, and we're basically still to, um, you know, here we are now in early 21. We're still celebrating and showcasing all those results from PitchFest uh, 2020. And then we're starting to do our planning for Pitch Fest 2022. Amazing. And yeah, it's been Did really you expect exciting. that sort of response? Like that's huge. We've done a lot of work in the building of the of the organization to acknowledge how much was happening globally. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the fact that we were brand new and mm-hmm. we put a strong enough case that your application is needed and what we're offering you is worth your time. Because you know, these things do take time and and effort. So we were surprised. Um, it definitely exceeded their expectations and it's just been fantastic. You can actually go to our website and look at those 12 finalists. I mean, they're everything from companies creating renewable energy from the ocean, people that are removing polystyrene packaging by creating new innovative packaging solutions, people that are addressing sea urchins and trying to find new aquaculture channels to remove sea urchins from the environment. There's people that are identifying and farming 
coral reefs that are resilient to climate change. It's just, it's, it's incredible the kind of solutions that are out Does there. That, that's so exciting though, even to just watch you talk about, you know, four examples and you light up. That's pretty cool stuff. And, you know, the call to arms at the moment that we're all kind of facing where, you know, change, you know, climate change is constantly in the news. People are, you know, obviously there's lots of um, campaigning around all different elements. But this is really exciting stuff to see, you know, from a technology aspect that you're helping these people make a bigger impact as well and almost bringing, like it's like an aggregator, isn't it? You're kind of bringing it all together and giving them a, you know, rather than just kind of fighting the fight by themselves. That's it. And that's a big reason and the rationale as to why I was able to shift across from all that incredible impact-driven participation stuff that Take 3 for the Sea does so well. So lots of education, lots of inspiration, and knowing that that was resulting in people all around the world getting activated and doing great things. But I think what I realised, particularly since this sort of 2015, 2016, we've sort of turned a hump, and particularly in advanced economies like Australia and the UK and many other nations, even parts of the developing world, the hearts and minds of the masses have been one. Like it, it felt for a while that we were striving just to get people to acknowledge the big problems. Now, in many ways, the people that matter, the big problems are known. So what do they need? They need solutions. They need solutions that can scale fast. And so that's why for me, this space where we're playing now, this is where I need to be. And this is where a lot of attention needs to be. If you have a topic burning inside you that you'd love to talk more about and have a conversation with me, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line at hello at wabisabiseries.com. Let's head back to the chat. Is there one major, like, is there a priority list in terms of some of the biggest problems in your mind of, of the impact that we're making on the ocean? Yeah, with the ocean impact, Pitch Fest, for example, we ask people to show which of six themes they were working in. So it could be looking at ocean health broadly. So that could be, you know, preventing pollution from the land. It could be restoring uh, ecosystems. We looked at like ocean harvesting. So this is devastating and, um, you know, people around the world rely upon the ocean for protein through seafood, but we really have no idea of the provenance of the seafood in most cases and the ghastly impact that it has on the planet and on people. Human slavery and just um, abhorrent behaviour is rife in the seafood trade. So how can we look towards a future where we can still feed 9 billion people in the future, but through mechanisms that don't harm people on the planet so much? So lots of innovative aquaculture. I mean, there's even lab-grown seafoods and various things now. So we had ocean health, ocean harvesting, ocean energy. Like um, anyone who knows the ocean knows it is a, it's bountiful of energy. Like it is so abundantly rich. So we had some, we had I think about 13 businesses, startups apply that were working on innovative forms of creating renewable energy from the ocean. Transportation security, so lots of interest in sort of decarbonising transportation and preventing a lot of the pollution and marine biofouling and all sorts of things associated with transportation. We had um, inspirations, uh, how can we increase ocean literacy and even people using you know, AI and VR and all these tools to sort of get people more 
aware and familiar with the ocean to therefore like what we started the conversation with ocean inspiration that's that's fabulous what because people don't have the interest in it or understanding enough to protect it and care about it yeah and even like surfing for example like sports and leisure like these are all ways that we fall in love with the ocean and what do you do when you love something you want to protect it right so how can we get the ocean um, more involved in people's lives and we had new frontiers with another category as well there so yeah, it's been um, yeah, really important for us to, I guess, really stipulate what it is that we're looking for. But really important to acknowledge that even though all those businesses could illustrate the positive impact that they were having on the ocean, you don't need to be a business that touches salt water. You know, the positive impacts can happen far from land. Like the winner of the Pitchfest campaign was Planet Protector Packaging. They are the ones that create this alternative to polystyrene for food delivery. They're based out in Western Sydney and in Silverwater. All their staff are like based out there in the Western suburbs. You wouldn't necessarily associate them with being an ocean impact business, but they're preventing 7 million polystyrene boxes from entering landfills in the ocean. So they are an ocean impact business. Yeah, but just again, that back to the whole entire thing on planet you know ocean that we are connected and that that is having an impact and that's probably a really good segue because i wanted to ask you doing some research on you and um, i'd learned more about the great pacific garbage what is it great pacific garbage patch or the pacific trash vortex it's known as like so you went to see that oh there's two parts i guess of it so i mean that must have been so profound i mean i've just i've only seen obviously images online and you did a ted talk on this as well but so that Like that whole correlation for me and obviously talking about, you know, our plastic usage and I've done another interview with Jackie Scrooby about that, about, you know, just reducing the waste in the first place is reducing the use of plastics. But how confronting was that to see, you know, on a major scale like that for you? Yeah, look, admittedly, um, it was a confronting experience, you know, namely because it involved me jumping on a sailing boat for the first time and sailing 5,000 kilometers across open ocean with all the fun associated with that but now look admittedly when planning for that trip it was i was fired up i've got to see this thing i've heard so much about it i took my camera gear it was like i'm going to go and document it and i tell the world about it but it's been a misnomer since day dot that there's this island of trash it's actually not aggregated anywhere near the way that it's been portrayed in online predominantly so you see those what could be viewed as trash islands or those dense aggregations close to shore, quite often close to major river systems that are depositing the trash from densely populated urban areas and cities. So some of the statistics out there are something like 90% of the pollution get entering the ocean comes from like 10 major river systems around the world. And I don't know the accuracy of that, but it's true. That's where it's all coming from. But by the time it reaches the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is halfway between Hawaii and California, it's dissipated and spread apart. It's broken up into smaller and smaller pieces because plastic doesn't break down in the sense of biodegrading. It breaks up into smaller and smaller fragments until it's micro and nanoscale. But what you have out there is these ocean currents, these vortices called gyres, and they are natural. They occur around the ocean. They dictate our climate, they help migration of plants. You can use them when you're sailing across the ocean to get somewhere faster. And um, naturally they take the plastic with them. So yeah, they definitely have dense concentrations of plastic, but at this point in time, maybe in the future, 
I think it's important to sort of uh, acknowledge that, you know, the trash islands don't exist out there, but there's enough trash out there to make as many islands as you want. There is so much trash in the sea. Mm. But, I mean, I think that's, again, around the education piece, though, when you talk about inspiration. To me, if there's nothing that's going to inspire me, inspire me in a, you know, almost like a negative or uh, motivate me more to do something, seeing that kind of stuff in real life and going, wow, like that. And I think, that you know, it's one of the points that Jackie was making is that we think you know we recycle here in australia and we think we're doing the right thing and it's all taken we pay our council rates and all that sort of stuff and it's been recycled but actually what's happening it's been shipped offshore Mm. and then often it's not being handled correctly so it could our you know little piece of plastic that we use here in sydney could end up in the shores of the ocean somewhere your point about take three for the sea just comes so naturally to me because i grew up as a kid doing the um you know clean up clean up australia day and so anytime i see trash anywhere in the world i always pick it up as i'm wandering but i know a lot of people didn't grow up like that it doesn't come naturally to them so it it has a real adverse effect on me when i see it in the ocean but i don't know like how to see that or to have an impact like how can we change that more i think it really comes down to this feeling of out of sight and out of mind and you know we're so fortunate here in countries like australia to have a centralized waste management system where you know we pop something in the trash can or the recycling in our kitchen or in our home and then it goes out to that nice big vessel that sits on the curb and then you put it out once a week or once a fortnight and it goes away and that's the last that you you see of it but the consequences are externalized that needs to be dealt with there's a huge energy burden associated with just moving our waste from us to be sorted in a you know municipal recycling facility then you've got to have you know shipped off to this recycling market and shipped off to here so there's just this all this huge burden and you know being out there in the open ocean and seeing the problem firsthand to me, one of the things that really struck me was that don't think about it as this plastic island in the sense that people imagine, oh, well, just go out there and then pick it up and you've removed the problem. Think about it like a plastic smog. Like when you go and look at a, a city like, um, you know, with densely polluting smog and horrible pollution, you don't think about going and getting, you know, a bucket or a barge and taking that smog from the sky, you go, oh, well, the way to get rid of that smog is to stop it billowing out from that polluting source. And so that's what we need to do. We need to stop it right at the source, which is you and I and everyone listening. It's your own footprint. It's your own consumption. It's the way that you participate in recycling. For example, you know, instead of popping it into a, you know, one of those, a bottle or can, for example, on one of the street side recycling bins, why not? keep it and take it to one of the recycling um, reverse vending machines where you can recycle it, you can get an economic incentive, 10 cent refund, but you're also participating in the circular economy because the quality of that recycling is going to go straight back into closed loop recycling where it will get put process back into another bottle or a can Mm. again so fundamentally what you're saying it's around that awareness piece right and about us you know doing a little audit and thinking about you know what is the impact we make in all these sort of points and you know i'm a big believer that one person can make a change and it might just be little things that you slowly change you know every day or every week just to get yourself a little bit more comfortable like you don't have to change everything overnight become a you know a bit the big active sort of warrior immediately but you 
you know, we can all make a difference. And to your point about the, you know, seeing the ocean like that is equivalent to smog, I think is a really good visual. Yeah, no, it really worked well for, for me and for how I was communicating the problem to other people. I love individual participation. I love when inspiration and education translates into action and participation. But I suppose the Tim in 2021 compared to the Tim in 2015 is also a bit more of a realist and pragmatic about the scale of how many people we can get to engage in good behaviour because there's just huge segments of our community here in Australia that just won't, doesn't prioritise for them. And there's huge rafts of the world who won't because they've got other things to worry about. So I suppose the other reason why I'm so motivated around OIO and this new vision of business as a force for good is the ultimate end game and the way we're going to have this sustainable longevity on this planet is when sustainability happens without even thinking about it. Like when sustainability is profitability, when the norm is doing good for the planet, not bad. And so I think, you know, even that is very idealistic and some people would say, you know, not realistic, but it's a, it's a damn good thing to champion for the time being because, again, we've got the hearts and minds. People know there's a big problem. Let's spend our time focused on finding and accelerating the solutions and less time talking about it and less time burying our head in the sand. It makes so much sense. It um, probably leads me to ask you a question around this is, you know, you've obviously been an advocate like this or a, a campaigner, you know, in your heart. Were you like this as a kid? Yeah, I think I was. But I was, it's funny, I'm... Um, I'm less of a campaigner in a room of people. Like if you saw me at a dinner party or just interacting with people on day to day, I don't tend to, you know, jump on anyone and try and ram any information down anyone's throat, but then put me on a stage and yeah, I do. Because <laughs> for me, it's about efficiency, right? Yeah, I, can meet, I can impact a lot more people through a, a podcast or a presentation yeah. than I can at a dinner party. What would you say to someone, they don't necessarily have to be a young teenager that wants to make a difference in this space, might be someone that's 60 or 70 that thinks, holy shit, I'm now at this age and I want to make a difference. What would be some advice for some things that they could actually, you know, get into or start or, you know, like being an advocate like you are, because you make it look easy. You're very natural and you're such a genuine, gorgeous guy that like people want to listen to you as well, but you're really making a difference in this space, but you can articulate, you know, where you're going, what, what the changes are, what's needed really clearly. And that's quite rare. I guess I've got to acknowledge that um, it's not easy for everyone to do that. I mean, on one hand, like everyone's got their own sphere of influence and even if there's one person around you that can be positively influenced by you then that's still better than nothing so you can always sort of start small and you know in one way anything is better than than nothing but at the same time there's so much reward that comes from it i cannot say that though without acknowledging the amount of sacrifice that you do make like leading a purpose-led existence, at least from my perspective, is unorthodox by comparison to my peers. And so I've fortunately been able to just make do of a, of a, of a different way of living. And that's because I quite often prioritise my moral code above other factors. And so but you yeah. say that like it's a bad thing. Tim, mate, everyone's trying to find their purpose. <laughs> like, you know, 
you've nailed it, like clearly from a young age and you are living that life and people would look to you and go, I want to, I wish I could live like that. But to your point, you have to make sacrifices and you've had to probably, you know, forego a lot of other things that would have been nice to do. So talk to me a bit more about that because, you know, a lot of people go, I want to find my purpose. I want to, you know, and they're living these miserable lives in their own view. And there's a lot of research now saying, stop trying to find your purpose and just do stuff that makes you happy because, if you're passionate about something and it makes you happy, you'll probably lead into your purposes naturally anyway. Yeah, no, I, I feel a lot for people that are in that mode where they are trying to grab their purpose and, you know, do, do you find your purpose or does your purpose find you? Like I can only reflect on my journey in that, you know, the, the compass point, the bearing was set so early on, I think I've just... And that's why I do use that word unorthodox, but I'd like it to be more orthodox because, and I think the next generation, are, are, are they're on that, aren't they? I mean, look at what has to be done now in the corporate world. You know, so many policies and directives and directions need to be set purely because they realise if they don't, they're not going to be able to get good people to work for them, let alone customers in the future. So I'm really driven by this next generation in charting a a way of doing things where it simply will not be tolerated if you don't fit in within their very, very uh, niche expectations. It is quite refreshing, isn't it, to see that that they come through and they've got, um, you know, they've got gusto and they're not afraid to ask the hard questions and to make us all accountable. I love it. I think it's um, a beautiful thing. So talk to me about a premise of where you think that, you know, as humans, we feel we're a little bit more superior than other creatures. And I think it's sort of something that we'd talked about previously around, you know, this is part of the education piece, I guess, with, with the ocean and the whole entire ecosystem that we live in and us appreciating that we are one of, you know, what millions of species. What's your take on that? This is one that I definitely do give a lot of consideration to and would love to see people um, broaching more. Uh, I think it definitely popped up a lot in 2020 throughout the early phases of the coronavirus pandemic and lots of people talking about interconnectedness, which is great, it's a good start, understanding that if we are interconnected with everything, then that sort of suggests that we are not everything. If we are interconnected, then we are not everything. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And so I think for me, yeah, it's a core of my mission, I suppose, is to ensure the long-term sustainability of planet ocean, right? And planet ocean only thrives and survives when it's in a beautiful biodiverse state, or at least I should probably caveat that it survives with us when it's in this beautiful, thriving biodiverse yeah. state. And so it's actually our own preservation that is at the core of all of this. It's that if we want to make it this beautiful, rich, habitable, phenomenal place that we've all been fortunate enough to experience, some with more privilege than others, then we've got a vested interest in, in keeping it in balance. And so for me, that's why plastic pollution and images of beautiful albatross that ancient mariners and indigenous cultures have been admiring for eons filled with stomachs full of plastic, which is kind of like, how can this be the collateral like damage? Yeah. yeah, the legacy and this sort of collateral damage. Oh, but look at all the great things that we're achieving and doing. And how but, smart we are and how techno-savvy we are. I'm with you. But we simply are. If, if that's the yeah. consequence, if we're 
losing sharks that are hundreds of million years old if we've lost 50 percent of all the world's coral reefs if we've lost rainforest we've we've got to start to look at ourselves in this lens of being like okay exactly how smart are we if we want to look at the time scale of our human occupation to date and where it's tracking and how many species are being lost as a result of this collateral damage in that time mm, such a good point there's yeah. a few podcasts in that one, isn't it? Oh, bloody hell. We could just keep going. I love that. So many good points in there, Tim. Just some real great thought starters. So if we bring it back into Ocean Impact Organisation, how can people get involved with you with that? Or is it like, do they have to work in that space? Or you sort of said before, it's it's kind of in other areas as well. But what, yeah, do the pitch on that. Because I want to understand a little bit more about it and how pe- people can be involved a bit more with you on that. Yeah, well, obviously, if today's chat's been interesting, then um, you know, check out the podcast, Ocean Impact Podcast, and follow us on socials, and we send out a fortnightly newsletter as well. So sign up at ocean-impact.org. At this stage, we would love as many people to be part of our crowd, to, to believe in this approach that we're taking to you know, business as a force for good for the planet. But of course, if you know anyone who's working in startups or businesses that could be one of these ocean impact innovations, then um, make sure they know about us because we want to try and make sure that they are all aware of us, we're aware of them because there's lots more programs to go. If we're going to accelerate 100 of these businesses in five years and move a lot of money into this sector, we need everyone to know about us. Yeah, beautiful. Just such an amazing concept of what you've come up with and I think you know you are making a difference in this space but every business that is involved in that is going to make a huge difference as well so this whole kind of circular element will start to gain momentum I'm sure so Tim that was an amazing conversation just uh, there are so many threads that I could pull there would be here for two hours so I think I better wrap it up but anything else you'd like to leave us with today on um, you know all those beautiful thoughts and concepts around planet ocean no, look, I um, enjoyed it. I think there's definitely been plenty of things in there that people might want to just go and follow to their own end and conclusion. So enjoy that process and make sure you ping me or hit me up if you've got any particular questions. <laughs> I'm Thanks sure for your time. Will. Oh, That's awesome. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you'll find all the show notes and interesting links on our website, wabisabiseries.com. If you'd like to hear more unexpected conversations, please subscribe to the series, follow us on our socials, or grab one of my books. And if you're in a generous mood, I'd love you to share the episode, or maybe even rate, review, and comment on the series. It really does make a difference. Until next time, be sure to claim your own piece of Wabi Sabi and walk proud in your perfect imperfections.